2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Carl Heiselman about how he went from being a graphic designer to the CEO of the branding powerhouse Wolf Olins.
3: I think of Wolf Owens in my job as designing the
2: actual business itself Heiselman also talks about the controversial identity for the London 2012 Olympics that Wolf designed, and about AOL's new identity. Here's Debbie Melman.
0: All companies want to create useful products. But what about creating useful companies? That's what Carl Heiselman wants to do. To be a useful company, Heiselman says, you must focus not on things, and not on words, but on actions. But what actions? That's a big question. Heiselman has spent years on it. And just this week, he presented his answer in a report, which I'm going to ask him about on today's show. Carl, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks, Debbie. So I believe that you are the only CEO of a publicly traded international organization that has a degree in graphic design.
3: I don't think that's true because I don't have a degree.
0: You never graduated? No,
3: I never graduated.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> Not proud of that,
3: but I'm mean, a couple couple credits short.
0: So you attended the Rhode Island School of Design and you studied graphic and industrial design, but you actually never graduated.
3: Yeah, I could never make up my mind what I wanted to do. You know, everything just seemed so appealing. You know, we want to be a photographer, or a filmmaker, or architect. So I picked industrial design because it was the least committed of a decision, because it's <laughs> the most general. And I did that for a couple of years, and then I, I was taking courses in graphic design and turned out to be a little bit better at that than I was probably industrial designer. But then I took a semester off. And when I came back and all my friends were graduating, I was, you know, a semester behind. And I just didn't feel like going for going another semester because I was kind of at the point where like I've learned what I'm going to learn. I want to make some money. I don't want to be paying money to repeat myself, you know, didn't make my mother very happy, but she she said she would disown me if I didn't go back to school.
0: And so but, you, but you never did. I never did. So yeah. you're actually joining the long line of very well-respected CEOs of major international companies that have dropped out of school. <laughs>
3: uh, I don't know about that.
0: <laughs> so, But why design? What made you – aside from the possibility that you could get a job, there's a lot of other majors you could have focused on that would have given you a much better chance of actually getting a job when you graduated than graphic or industrial design.
3: I think it's shocking how little, at least when I was in school, how little is told about what the various professions are in high school. I, that, was, I,
0: I had that same thing happen to me. I knew nothing about yeah. anything.
3: Honestly, the reason why I went to RISD is I saw a brochure on my art teacher's desk, and I, I was all set to go for sports medicine. You know, I was a bit of a jock in, in high school, and I, I loved art. I loved art class. I didn't think there were any jobs that were related to it. I thought it was like gym class, you know? And uh, I saw that brochure and I go, wow, that looks looks like a lot of fun.
0: Rhode Island School of Design is not the kind of school where you just sort of off-the-cuff apply. I mean, it's a really tough school to get into. You must have had quite a strong application.
3: It's funny because my art teacher asked me to help clean his desk off. <laughs> that's, where I, that's where I saw the brochure. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. "This looks great." Um, and he goes, "Yeah, good luck. It's really hard to get into." And um, I did you take
0: it, all the stuff on his
3: desk and submit it? <laughs> well, no, but it just made me go. What do you mean I can't go? Yeah, I, I you want know, to oh, go.
0: Oh, the competitive gene yeah. in you
3: was ignited. Exactly, and then. But it is shocking that, you know, the decision between being an architect and a graphic designer or, you know, a painter or filmmaker, whatever, those decisions you take, you know, you put a lot of thought into those. But what's often not discussed is what kind of life do you want to have? Because you could be an architect designing doorknobs for a giant firm, you know, designing like hospital doors and doorknobs. Or you could be a residential architect in California or you could, you know, there's so many different versions. All the emphasis is architect or photographer or, you know, scientist or engineer or whatever, as opposed to where do you want to live and what kind of life do you want to have? And that, to me, seems far more important than the profession. I think, you know, there's so many things I would love to have done. I think that's why it was so hard for me to choose because it all sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, then you have to actually choose only, only one.
0: But why branding then? Here you are, the CEO of a major branding firm. How did that happen?
3: I have no idea. I after I didn't graduate, I spent my twenties really just wanting to be a, an artist. Um, so a painter, a paint or... a painter, or like most guys in their twenties, I guess, or or in a band. Ah, so do you play <laughs> so an I instrument? So pursued, I pursued both of those. Uh, while so you like I, the
0: front man of like an emo no, band? No, no, more something? more of a
3: bass player. Okay, yeah. So I worked part time as a designer and around the clock either trying to be a a bad musician or a bad painter. And I finally realized, actually, I'm a pretty good designer, and I'm a a really bad painter. And what I was craving, I think, wasn't necessarily to be a painter, but it was to have that kind of lifestyle. And then I realized, well, actually, I can live like an artist, or at least my idea of what an artist is, and be a designer. And so I pursued that. I finally kind of caved in or gave up and said, all right, actually, damn it, I'm a, I'm a designer. And I had my own studio for a while, and, and I literally lived like an artist. I, I could spend three or four days in my live workspace and not leave and go, wait a minute, I got, I got to get out of here.
0: Now, you were a design director at Apple, where you've mm-hmm. stated you learned the importance of design in business. Was your job at Apple the first job that you got when you decided that you wanted to be a graphic designer? Or did you already have your own agency for a little while and then somehow manage to snag a job at one of the best companies in the world?
3: No, I think, it, I think it's probably <laughs> worth knowing that at that time it wasn't one of the best companies yeah, yeah, in the world. Know, it was in the dark yeah. years when, when Steve Jobs was gone. But I, I didn't really have many full-time jobs. I freelanced a lot because I liked the flexibility. And for me, it was it's really hard to sit at a desk at a job and create. So for a long time, I didn't, I didn't accept jobs that were full-time and I just protected my ability to do good work, which meant I need to do the thinking on my own and I will come in and collaborate and work with people. But I really pushed back at, at taking a full-time job. But I really – for a long time, I lived in San Francisco and I, I really wanted to go and live in Europe and work in Europe. And me and a friend had a small studio uh, south of market in San Francisco, and he got a job at Apple. And then he he asked me to go to Apple with him freelance. And uh, so I did that for a couple of years. But I would say the best part about that job was that I got to ride my Ducati down 280 every day, uh, 150 miles an hour, whatever it was. But it was fun. It was good. I think in most jobs, it really comes down to the few people that you're working with and that crew, although it was kind of dark days. Um, that was a tight crew, and and we did. we really tried to push the boundaries.
0: I've read that you've described it as the dark days before the return of Steve Jobs and when the British designer Jonathan Ive was still an undiscovered star in the basement of the industrial design department. And you say that the big lesson that you learned was that they were trying to be somebody that they weren't, and that when Jobs came back, he said very clearly, we're going back to who we really are. How do you feel like that influenced how you have influenced Wolf Olin's?
3: It seemed like most of the very best people had left after Steve Jobs left. And there were constantly rumors about somebody buying them or them going out of business. And, and so what you had is a group of people that were still there who were really holding on to the good old days. And everyone was really – if you remember back when they were using Garamond Condensed and the colorful logo and and all that. And at that time, they were using the craft background. I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember yes, that. Yes, I right? do. I do remember nice. the packaging actually. That's quite nice. But everyone was really stuck on defending that as opposed to evolving it. And we were trying to really push that and evolve it, which I think we did. And then I went to work for Swatch first in New York and then Milan finally – got to Europe. But looking at what he did after I wasn't there and he he was there, it was super impressive because, you know, came back, made some decisions that were painful to the bottom line, like getting out of businesses that were, you know, revenue streams. And then the Think Different campaign that came out and then the iMac that came out shortly after that was, seemed like it was really getting back to its roots. I think how that affected me and my job now is that you know, when you follow Steve Jobs, I think we all recognize that he's he was the head of design, really, at Apple as a CEO, meaning that he designed everything. He applied design to the entire company. And I don't mean just the design of objects and things, but of the whole ecosystem and um, the, the entire experience. And that's, of course, why Apple is so incredible today. It's interesting because when I first joined Wolf Owens in the San Francisco office, I was coming off of being a creative director in Milan for Swatch and I was really pretty bad at it, mainly because nobody teaches you how to go from a designer to a creative director. That's a really difficult transition.
0: Why is it so difficult?
3: I think it's true in lots of in lots of professions. You go from focusing on being a star player, like really understanding your craft and falling in love with that craft and being really good at, at that. And then all of a sudden you transition to being a coach. And that it takes completely different skills and nobody teaches you how to go from being the player to the coach. And it took me a, a few tries to actually get that my job isn't to do the work. My job is to create the conditions for other people to thrive.
0: How do you do that?
3: I think of Wolf Owens and my job as being uh, designing the actual business itself. So when you think of it that way, it's a blast because you can say, all right, what kind of culture do we want to have? What kind of things do I want to fix about places that I've worked before that I really didn't like? What kind of work do we want to do? How much money do we want to make? How important is money? Do we want to work weekends and evenings? Do we, you know, do we want to, how many offices do we want? To, you know, what's our business model? That to me is, I think, because I spent a lot of time in, in the craft of, of design um, and love doing it. It was kind of the next uh, progression, I guess, just to think of the entire business as a design problem. And that's, I think, that's fun. And that's what we do for our clients as well.
0: So how would you describe the culture at Wolf Owens?
3: We try to create a condition where people can thrive is the best way to put it. There's this phrase from Netflix that I love, part of their culture, which is no room for brilliant jerks. <laughs> yes. I think we've all met those people that are that are brilliant. Um, but jerks. But can be, you know, tough to be around. And I see design as, as a performance and it's a direct expression of the state you're in. So if you're feel panicked, you're going to create panicky work. And if you feel angry, your work's going to be angry probably. And if you're feeling confident, it's like sports. You know, If you're on the slope and you're looking down the slope and you're afraid, you're probably going to fall. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So I think creating the right state is super important. I remember I was at RISD. I was TAing a class and the professor was super intimidating but brilliant. Uh, I wouldn't call him a jerk, but he was kind of intimidating. And he asked me to help these students with with drawing. There's six of them. He's kind of like, Carl, could you work with these guys and see what you can do? And I had taken classes with him before, so I kind of got him. And I did just a really simple thing. I'll remember, I'll always remember this because it was so powerful. I just said, okay, guys, let's go into this other room. I want you to get a bunch of newsprint and you're just going to, you can act really cocky, like you can draw and just act like you can draw and have fun. And it was amazing with the transformation because they got themselves into a, into a much more positive state. You know, they had to be halfway decent to be at RISD to start off with, and a lot of art and expression is about about you, you know? And the creative director at Wolfholm's New York office, Todd Simmons, he has this phrase which I, I love when he's looking at people's books. He says, you, you're not hiring a portfolio, you're hiring a person. And a portfolio tends to be a reflection of where you've come from and what you're able to do except for your personal work. And so casting the team to have the right chemistry is, is super important. And you need bass players and drummers and lead guitarists. and
0: Yeah, you need uh, the Cal Ripkins who just show up every day, yeah, right? Yeah, ex- right?
3: exactly. So getting that casting and chemistry right is really important.
0: So, you started at Wolf Hollands in about two thousand, is that correct? and you started as a design director yeah. and so there you were a craftsperson making things and then you were untrained but then asked to be a coach and then you go from being a coach to sort of being the what's ahead the what's the top of a coach <laughs> <laughs> owner but right. not even you know you're sort of the man that's sort of. The, the the great and wonderful Oz.
3: <laughs> I don't know about that.
0: But if you didn't get trained to go from design director to coach, how do you get from coach to Oz without <sighs> the training? How do you how does how does one make a path that looks like that? How yeah. do you get go from design director to CEO? I,
3: I went from actually being a designer, saying I don't want to manage anybody because of a bad experience at Swatch, you know, not being successful, and just saying, okay, if I join Wolf Olin's, I just want to be left alone and be a designer. 2 3 months later will you move to New York and run our New York office? And I think the way I wrapped my head around it was what I was saying earlier is I need to approach that opportunity as a designer and as I would what do I have to offer? What is it that I'm really good at? And I'm going to I can be better than anyone else at that, but if I'm a pretender or an imposter and try to be a managing director or a CEO or whatever like somebody else I'm gonna get my ass kicked. You know, so I think yeah. it's just saying if you're an MD of an office or you're CEO, then you you can design that role however you like and change my life dramatically and my role when I got a really good chief operating officer who is really good at all the things I suck at.
0: You mentioned this twice, so it's forcing me to ask you about it only because from what I've researched It's flying in the face of something that you've said about this failure at Swatch. You spent two years as the executive creative director. And while you were there, you directed four 60-piece collections that have been really credited with revitalizing the brand around the world. So was it a a personal failure or was it just a, a sort of fit failure?
3: I think the work that we did when I was there I'm really proud of. But I think I didn't make the transition to being Creative director successfully. Okay,
0: so that that transition from maker to coach.
3: Yeah, and I, you know a couple other things weren't in my favor. They asked me to go from running the New York lab to going to Milan to run that lab, and I accepted without ever visiting Milan. Mm. <laughs> I didn't speak Italian. Okay, I was younger than everyone else,
0: so it was culturally. A it was it was diff- It was tough
3: because I was the American coming there. Mm. They, you know, and all the watches have been designed there for years, so they were kind of like. At that time, this was in the '90s. They were, they were signing autographs on weekends, and who's was this jerk from New York who can't speak our language. And so we had to hold meetings where I would have a, it would be through a translator, literally. Oh man! And I was taking classes at night, but you still, you know, you can't pick it up that quickly. And um, and was, where's the nuance? Yeah, <laughs> I had actually had to fire somebody through a translator, which was not fun at all, but. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything, though. It was so valuable to, you know, going to art school and living in San Francisco, I was pretty down on America. And so I, mean, I lusted after Europe, especially Italy, you know. Right, and of course. so going there, it was an amazing experience to be there, of course, for all the reasons you would imagine. But it was also really valuable for me to view America through a different lens and see the stuff that I don't like, but also the things I'm really proud of.
0: So you said you wouldn't trade that experience for the world. When you came back to the United States to work at Wolf Olin's, had your confidence been shaken? Did you somehow feel that you were no longer the the talented craftsperson that you were prior?
3: No, I'm, uh, there were other steps in between that. I kind of burned a bridge and left over a weekend because um. of some politics. I was a little bit like a farm kid <laughs> in Italy, you know, where I just didn't get the politics. And I was like, I'm out of here.
0: Well, interesting then that you started your own firm called The Farm. So that, and that was probably in between Swatch and Wolf Olin's, no? Yes, okay. that was, that was, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
3: But it was, um, I kind of left over a weekend, called them from New York and said, I'm done. And then wow. I started a studio with a friend, Mark Homan, who was also at Swatch. And so we did that for a while and started a magazine and then...
0: What kind of magazine?
3: It's called Famous Aspect. It's like a fashion and culture magazine, which he still has the, the studio, studio constructor, and uh, he's done uh, a couple other issues of Famous Aspect. But in that first issue, we we had a bunch of clients and then we... It was back in the day when it was you know, too cocky and ended up firing clients and... Starting a magazine and running out of money, and then I ran back to San Francisco. was restless sounds like a life well
0: lived Carl It sounds like a life well lived
3: i can't believe I've been in the same job for as long as I have. I think I've just fallen in love with with Wolf Hollands. you know when I first went over to London to meet the guys when I accepted the job in san francisco i was i couldn't believe there was a whole building of people that I could actually relate to that believed in similar things. So that was, that was nice because I hadn't, I never had that experience uh, anywhere that I was freelancing or or had a job in my, in my life. So that was kind of felt like home.
0: It's an unusual culture in that it's palpable. There are only a few firms that I feel when you go there, it's sort of unmistakably there.
3: Yeah. And Wolf
0: Olins is a company like that. IDEO is a company like that where you walk in and it sounds almost cliche to say that there's a lot of Kool-Aid, but there's a lot of Kool-Aid and there's a real energy and pride in in being in that environment. The website, the Wolf Olin's website, says that brands are not about empty promises but about creating a better reality. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that means.
3: It used to be that you could create perceived difference through image and advertising. You know, What was the difference between MasterCard and Visa? A giant campaign, right? You could argue today there might be some differences, but it used to be that they were exactly the same and you could create perceived difference through image and words. Now, clearly in a hyper-connected world, that just doesn't work. If you think about a brand that you love or a brand that you don't like, I can guarantee for 90% of the population, it's got nothing to do with their logo or their advertising. It has to do with how they treat you and what the products are like and, you know, what what the experience is. Image advertising, the rest of it, are important, sure, yeah, it's important, but it's far less important than how useful the products are and and how they delight you in various ways. To me, that's really obvious. You look at someone like Skype who has uh, something like 600 million users, almost no marketing or advertising to speak of, Or, you know, the business square, how successful that's been so quickly just by being super useful. So that's what we mean. You know, it can't just be about the big fake out. People don't buy it.
0: So do you feel that it's really possible for brands to create a better reality? Or do you think that it's something that people like us that love brands so much tell ourselves to feel better about what we're doing?
3: well i guess what we mean by a better reality is that it's not just the the image so increasingly with our clients we're helping them design experiences you know whether they're digital or customer service or products or retail environments or whatever it's that's the better reality that we're talking about and also there's a there's been a long heritage in wolf phones you know we've been going 45 years of believing that you know we're not curing cancer or anything like that, but we have a responsibility to in our craft and what we do encourage and poke and provoke and push the world in a in a better direction, you know not like in a w- overly worthy way, but just if we can make those experiences better, then it makes life and work a hell of a lot better.
0: Well let's talk about one of Wolf olin's big. Provocations. Here it comes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the Tate. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. <laughs> so, in 2007, Wolf Olins created the 2012 Olympics logo, which is a brightly colored piece of graffiti that was designed to capture <clears throat> the energy of the city. And the launch of the logo was met with, with I guess, pretty widespread public <laughs> derision in the UK. I'm going to read you a couple of the descriptions of the of the logo, and Carla's bristling for our listeners that are not able to see us. <laughs> <laughs> so some people called it a reconstruction of the letters of Zion, numerous red herrings, a pornographic representation of the character Lisa Simpson, a broken swastika, an example of the design you get when politicos and business people try to be hip. That was painful. <laughs> yeah. And an alkapop induced vomit. <laughs> nice. Sorry. Um, it was reported that 49,000 people signed a petition demanding that the design be torn up. Yet you have stated that when you first saw it, you thought, wow, this is great work. And you still do to this day. So I wanna to talk to you about about the logo. What do you, sure. you you still feel strongly that it was good work?
3: Yeah, I think one of the stories that hasn't been told is and this has not a lot to do with us, it has more to do with the committee in London, is that the ambition for the twenty twelve games really was and is it's pretty amazing actually. The idea was to reach out to the youth of the world and to encourage kids to be active in sport. And to not view the Olympics as a two-week event, you know, where it's all about the athletes on stage. And it's usually a kind of a coming-out party for a city. Think about Beijing. In some ways, that was Beijing saying, you know, Hi. we're here. <laughs> right. London didn't need to do that. And uh, the other thing I'll say is that I think creating work that everyone can agree on is good taste and doesn't upset anybody is a good way to go unnoticed, you know, there's a reason why we're still talking about it.
0: So do you think it was a deliberate decision to go against what would be considered the prevailing good taste of the time in identity work or work for the Olympics?
3: It was meant to be thought-provoking, for sure. I, of course, we didn't think it would have the, the kind of reaction that it did. But at the same time, I, by many measures, it's one of the most successful brands in history for the Olympics. And I think we should, we should let history judge and i think the thing that we're probably missing in the conversation the most is if the 2012 olympics in london are spectacular it will be a representation of that and that's where we should probably put our focus mm-hmm. as opposed to um you know the symbol for it because meaning will p- be put into the symbol you know later as well
0: i think it's from an anthropological point of view it was really the first time that there was, as far as I can tell, aside from maybe New Coke, which was, what, 20, 20 years ago now, the first time in quite a long time that there was a public outcry about a brand in that unified a manner. Now, since that time, there's been several more very public outcries about change, <clears throat> about identity. And from a, a pattern perspective – It's interesting now to think that the Olympics didn't budge. They didn't change the logo. Despite 49,000 people signing a petition demanding that the design be torn up, beside the fact that there was not even UK outcry but global outcry about this identity, they didn't go back on the decision to – launch it, to use it. Whereas there have been so many since then, so many other redesigns that have also created that type of reaction that have very quickly been pulled back and the original identity or the previous work was then brought back to the market. So it it took a lot. I, I can't imagine that there wasn't a lot of discussion about whether or not they should continue supporting this logo that so many people were vehemently opposed to.
3: Yeah, I think that they probably also understood that the world is talking and the world's talking about the Olympics in London and and why would you pick that symbol and what does that mean? And I can't think of another Olympics in history that got so much talk going because of it. And then for sponsors to be associated with kind of a reinvention of sorts of, of the Olympics and to try to make it more relevant for... The youth, particularly for brands like Adidas, is a really positive thing.
0: Do you think that the companies that have backtracked and backpedaled with their identities or with their packaging and have gone back to the original made a mistake in going back? Do you think they should have held firm in their decisions to transform their companies visually in the way that they felt was appropriate?
3: I think you can't make a a blanket call on that. I think it's, you know, really depends. It you know, obviously in Gap's case, my view is don't change your logo unless it's representing a new strategy, because that's your introduction to tell your new strategy. And it's symbolizing that new strategy. And clearly Gap didn't, they were just changing it for style reasons, I guess. If you change it To put a flag in the ground to say, here's where we're going, and this represents it, it almost doesn't matter so much if people like or dislike it. Branding isn't a popularity contest. It's more of saying this is who we are and this is where we're going, especially when it comes to corporate identity. I think packaging is probably different. I don't have a a ton of experience in package design, some, but not, not a ton, but... That's a little bit different because you're buying the actual product. You know, consumers buying the product.
0: Well, you're still buying into the idea of a brand if, even if it's just the corporation's identity. Yeah. But you've said that as a whole you think that the corporate identity industry has a too small definition of good. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that a little bit.
3: Well, if you think of any of the arts or architecture, the rules are so wide open – And if you think about architecture, you go from Frank Gehry to Rem Koolhaas to conservative architecture. You know, there's such such a huge range of what spaces should be and could be. Whereas in corporate identity, for the most part, over the last 20, 30 years have been there's been kind of rules that everyone learns at school and follows. Except (laughs) Wolf (laughs) Owens. You know, and it kills me still that A lot of designers will start with what looks good on a business card or a sign and then they'll think about, okay, oh, yeah, this has to move and you're going to experience it on screen. Whereas clearly today you should design for this thing to be in motion because it's the way you experience most brands first and then then think about, okay, we've got to stop it, meaning we have to freeze it and, and have a, you know. Whereas I think a lot of designers, or some anyway, we'll kind of go, oh, let's go to the black and white version that's the smallest possible. Right. And of course you have to solve for that. But that's thinking of it as we did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And to me, design is a lot about context. You know, we design and oftentimes on screens and, you know, back at the shop and then we print out boards and, you know, everything looks fantastic and – Really what you're doing is you're designing into the context of a magazine spread or on somebody's phone or in a store. And so bringing those things into their environment, into their context is is kind of everything. And today, for most brands, uh, the screen is enormously important.
0: So speaking of screen then, let's talk about AOL, another really revolutionary very surprising identity that no one saw coming, and there was quite a lot of outcry about. I had a better reaction to AOL than I did to 2012 I immediately saw the AOL identity and thought it was magnificent there was a lot of parodies of the AOL identity with the various backgrounds that you used for context utilizing the um, negative space of the a the O the L and the mm-hmm. period and I saw I think there's a there seems to be quite a lot of uh, mashing up of Wolf Olin's identities with The Simpsons I'm not entirely <laughs> sure why, but I, I think that if I worked at Wolf Olins, I might find that really, really satisfying. <laughs> um, why do you think that people had such a hard time with with that identity?
3: I'm not entirely sure that they did. I don't remember. I don't, oh, re- don't I remember that. I don't. I don't read the design blogs. No, I've really. So not to it, do it, that. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> but, that's why. But I do think that it because it's challenging the notion of corporate identity, which is fixed you know you think about what we've taught our clients over the last you know 40 years or whatever it's been you know to obsess about control you know it's all you know oh my god it's not the right band color. not mm. oh my god the logo is too big in relationship to this or that we get so obsessed with control and being brand cops that I think people lost sight of what's really important which is the content that you're creating with it and making making it delightful and amazing and and then, as I mentioned before, as it comes to identity, the whole name of the game, particularly if you're switching leadership and strategy, is no matter what AOL did, Tim Armstrong, CEO, was going to it was going to be front page news, and it was going to be incredibly negative because of the spinoff from Time Warner, because the you know, as we all know, it was one of the biggest business disasters in history when AOL bought Time Warner. So when they spun off, that was going to pull all that negativity up. So you know we encouraged a o l to
2: fly
0: in
3: the face, aim for the fences, man. everyone's gonna be no matter what you do, people aren't gonna like it, so you might as well do something bold that says we're a new a o l that was the introduction for Tim to tell his content story, and the idea that a o l is literally behind all this content and the other thing that made that really fun is that we got to hire a ton of different artists and motion folks and just say do the coolest, craziest work you've ever done in your life, stuff you, that you can't get in your portfolio, and we'll get it made. <laughs> so we had artists and designers and uh, lining up at the door because who wouldn't want that brief? I think some of the nicest stuff is the the motion. motion It's beautiful.
0: I kept my AOL username just because of the new identity. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So, and we can go on and on. There's so many identities I'd love to talk to you about Unilever, the work for Target, the work for the Tate. But I do want to talk to you because we are in the city itself, New York City, branding what you call the unbrandable city. I loved that. You were branding the unbrandable city. How is it the unbrandable city? Isn't isn't it the Big Apple? I mean, isn't that our brand?
3: I think place branding in general is really, really hard because it feels artificial if it's not done right. You know, it's not a company and it's not one culture and one thing, so... Uh, The approach we took was exactly that. There's no one New York. There's only one New York, meaning there's no place on the planet like New York City, but there's thousands of different versions of it. And part of what the city wanted to do was get people to understand that it's not just about Manhattan. New York is five boroughs. And it's not just the Statue of Liberty, and the Empire State Building. It's so many other things. So our task was to develop a brand that reflected that and a little bit like London 2012 we're not big fans on in general and being nostalgic and why not because we should be moving forward looking forward inventing the future not wishing for the past and so in 2012's case to not use you know leaping figures over Big Ben or (laughs) you know those all those cliches let's try to be more progressive and invent something that hasn't existed yet and that, that sparks people's imagination of what, what could be. And same with the New York City brand. It would be really tempting to use the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty as something, you know, looking License backwards. like yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. That's just not interesting to me. And I think it's somehow cynical to look back all the time.
0: How do you convince your clients to take these big leaps of faith?
3: I think because... We have 45 years of history of doing it. People don't come to us unless they're looking for that. you know. So I think people are already self-selecting. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you turn a lot of work down because of that? Do you feel that if they're not coming to you with courage that you don't want to work with them?
3: Yeah, we, we turn away work or not work but RFPs and requests for information all the time. But it's it's not just about being brave. It's We want to work with people we like. We want to work with people that are – hopefully doing something positive in the world and we want to work with with people that are ambitious and luckily there's there's tons of those people in the world
0: so i would certainly describe the work that wolf allens does as game changing you're a game changing organization that also helps other organizations change their game and you recently published a report titled just that game changers and the report is about five behaviors that you've identified via fairly rigorous research that are changing and shaping the future of business. And the five behaviors are being useful, value creative, boundaryless, purposeful and experimental. And the experimental was one of my favorites. And you talk about being in a state of perpetual beta. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of these values, but first starting with being in this state of perpetual beta and what you mean by that.
3: Well, I think it's important to think about the context of 20th century versus what we're going through right now. I think we sometimes forget we're going through such tremendous change at such a tremendous pace, um, you know, that's equal to the invention of the printing press or the industrial revolution. It's And it's happening a lot faster. And so the metaphors that we use and the way that we think about how we run businesses and manage businesses and lead businesses are the way that we used to is really different due to technology, really. I mean, if you, if you, you think about in... The branding world, the language is – really comes from the military, that we take a position and we defend it with campaigns. You know, it's sort of – Positioning. Yeah, position. Positioning, yeah, it's all it's – all, Perceptual
0: maps. Yeah,
3: it started with the military, then it went into business strategy. Um, when things aren't changing very rapidly, what allows you to win is process innovation and efficiencies and scale. And that created tremendous wealth in the twentieth century, so it's pretty astonishing the amount of wealth that was created. However, today is very different because a institutions don't control the flow of information. There's not one way. And you can be found out and it's a collective intelligence that, that rules, not top-down organizational structures. So
0: well you say that now we are the source of each other's truth. We meaning the collective populace as opposed to the brands that tell us certain things or the books that tell us certain things or the politicians that tell us certain things.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be alive because we're, of course, we're not at the end of the transition. We're like at the beginning and in, in the middle of it. I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of upheaval and, and change because the, the power structures are changing. And if you think about who is successful in this new context, which isn't about control in process innovation, and in scale, and efficiency. Um, it's folks like Google who just are, are, are built completely differently. You know, if you think about the way their, their culture works, it's just they get out of bed to do a different thing, and their culture is, is really different. But you were asking about experimental. Yes, (laughs) the
0: experimental uh, perpetual state of beta and how companies need to be experimental now in order to be game changers.
3: Yeah, I guess I was being long-winded and trying to get to the point that you can't just pursue a business strategy as if things aren't changing around you constantly. And you can't just pursue one business strategy. You have to be trying things all the time and kind of learn and adapt to what's working, just like you you would a, a digital experience. You know, you put something out there, you see what's working, you adjust it. Um, so that's what we mean by a perpetual state of of beta. It's, nothing is ever finished. You're just you're just in the flow, uh, constantly tweaking. Yeah.
0: I didn't realize until I read the report. And it's interesting the way it's worded in the report. You write, it's no surprise that the world's most powerful brands can jump categories at will. Apple, Google, Tata, Innocent, Sony, Sky, Virgin, Tesco can gate crash almost any category they choose. And it was really the first time I'd actually thought of it that way. So for me, it was entirely surprising that the world's most powerful brands can do that. We're living in a day and age where that's the first time we've seen that kind of agility from the world's largest companies. And and it's the first time we've seen that agility period where the virgins of the world were the anomalies. Now it seems like the tide has changed quite dramatically.
3: Well, there were, you know, if you think about GE's whole model was, they are and were in hundreds of businesses. But the thing that glued them together was Six Sigma, a way of doing business. Right. A, A lot like some of the most successful Japanese companies you know we have a way of doing business but we're going to be in lots of businesses which is a little bit different i think than the googles and the apples of the world because they're looking at things more holistically how things relate and interact and create an ecosystem so if google puts out a new a new venture a new business or or apple does it's usually serving their core business model as opposed to just saying okay guys go out and conquer and use this platform of uh, an approach.
0: Well, Carl, I feel like we're, we're not able to fully go into the depth that I want to um, with this really quite astonishing report that you've put out there for the world to read about what it means to be a game changer in today's world, um, Wolf Olin style. So for anybody that is interested in, in looking at it, Wolf Hollins is giving it away free on their website at wolfollins.com. Thank you for coming today, Carl. It's been really an honor and a privilege to talk to you. Thank you, Debbie. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward
2: to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jeff Post. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
1: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down.